This is the Monday, December 28th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and I want to welcome you to The History Author Show. Thank you so much for listening to us on our iHeartRadio channel, for subscribing to us on iTunes, or finding us on Player FM, or any of the other many personal audio outlets where we're available. And remember, you can listen to iHeartRadio on your new model car right there in the dashboard, like you listen to any other radio. Of course, today, as I'm fond of saying, we are not in a car or a new model truck, we are in a time machine. And it's taking us back in time to the days that tried men's souls, the American Revolution and the fight after the war was won to set up a representative republic, one that would enshrine all of those virtues of freedom that the patriots had fought for all those long years. Our guest is Stephen F. Knott, who along with his co-author, Tony Williams, wrote the book Washington and Hamilton, The Alliance That Forged America. Washington and Hamilton chronicles the collaboration between these two very different men, one young, one old, but both having lost their fathers at an early age and hungry to leave a glorious mark on the world. For his part, George Washington had no children of his own, so he looked at the young Hamilton as a son, and of course Hamilton looked at him as a father. He is the father of our country, after all. All the men serving under Washington had to look up to him. George Washington was a native Virginian from a distinguished planter family. Alexander Hamilton, not a privileged kid, an illegitimate child who emigrated from the West Indies in 1772 to earn an education. This is a story of the indispensable general and a brilliant, hungry young officer and lawyer. And by the way, if you've seen Hamilton on Broadway, you probably love it as all the critics do. My wife simply can't stop playing the songs and singing along, and she has two music degrees, so I guess she knows what she's talking about. Stephen Knott is a professor of national security affairs at the United States Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, and former co-chair of the Presidential Oral History Program at the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. You can follow him on Twitter at Publius57. Publius, of course, was the pseudonym under which Alexander Hamilton wrote his portion of the Federalist Papers. Don't you love history in-jokes? You can also find his co-author, Tony Williams, at TWilliamsAuthor on Twitter. Tony Williams is a history teacher, the author of four books. He also works at the Bill of Rights Institute, as well as the Washington, Jefferson, and Madison Institute. Okay, now that we've put on our Continental Army uniforms and fallen in line, Let's march back to the earliest days of America and meet Washington and Hamilton. I'm on the line with Stephen F. Knott, author of Washington and Hamilton, The Alliance That Forged America. Thank you so much for joining me on the History Author Show today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. 
I enjoyed this in part because I'm a graduate of Rutgers University and Old Queens is the oldest building on the campus at Rutgers, the original campus there at Rutgers College. And they built it on a hilltop where Hamilton's cannons covered the retreat of Washington's army from New York City. And of course, there were so many ineffectual soldiers and militia in the Continental Army that was so frustrating for Washington that I wanted to start by asking you to talk about how that moment sort of makes Washington notice Hamilton. Uh, great question. Yeah, Hamilton is a student at King's College, in, uh, which is now Columbia University, in New York when the Revolutionary War breaks out. And he um, raises an artillery company becomes a captain of this New York Provincial Artillery Company, which fairly quickly sees some pretty interesting action in and around the Battle of, of Long Island and Harlem Heights and so forth. And this is the point at which he comes to the attention of George Washington. We're not entirely sure whether it was word of mouth, possibly through General Green. That's one rumor. The other rumor is that it was through this Lord Sterling, who his real name was William Alexander. But one way or another, Hamilton comes to Washington's attention. Some people believe Washington actually saw him in action. But Hamilton did have a reputation for having a very disciplined, well-organized group of young artillerymen. And they performed quite well. As you mentioned, they sort of covered Washington's retreat from that disastrous campaign in and around New York, where we came very close to sort of losing the entire glorious cause, to borrow a phrase. And this is only five or six weeks after the Declaration of Independence has been issued. So had Washington's army been destroyed in the late summer of 1776, that would probably have been it for the revolutionary cause. And Hamilton deserves at least some credit, some partial credit for helping make sure that that does not happen by covering Washington's retreat in such an effective manner. And you describe a great moment the way that I read it in Washington and Hamilton, where you talk about Hamilton. He sort of hears the war drums being beaten and they know about the cause of liberty. And he goes and starts reading. He's not a trained soldier at all. Right. And he's right. he just learns on his own things like, and when you think about artillery, that's a lot of work there to get the exactly right. You don't want to bomb your own guys. You don't want it to explode on you. Right. And yet he manages to make himself really efficient. One other thing I thought of, because I was speaking about Rutgers there and the history of the area, the Declaration of Independence was read there. And if people huh. go, now that we're in the Big Ten, which we're very proud about, our record notwithstanding always, is you can go to the church there, which I believe is the third place in the country, in the colonies at the time, where they read the Declaration of Independence aloud. So wow. you could still get some of that revolutionary era history, which I do love. One other thing that's happening right now, of course, is the play Hamilton, as I mentioned in the introduction, that's burning up Broadway, and it's also burning up my ears because my wife loves it, and she keeps singing all the songs. And when you and I talked about it, I said my wife saw the book, Washington and Hamilton, which previously she would have probably overlooked, especially being a Canadian originally. So I wanted to ask you, what are your opinions there of the play, and how's that affecting you here as you roll out your own book? Well, the timing could not have been better as far as the rollout of this book. I mean, it was completely accidental. I think the formal opening of the musical on Broadway was in July, if I remember correctly, and our book came out in early September. So 
God bless Lynn Manuel Miranda and the other folks who made this musical possible. <laughs> My wife and I went to see it over Labor Day weekend. I have to say I went in with some skepticism. I just found it hard to believe that a hip-hop musical of one of the founding fathers would somehow work. But I'll tell you, by the time I left, I was converted. Uh, we were both extremely impressed. There were some factual uh, liberties taken uh, in the musical. The one thing that sort of irked me was twice throughout the musical, it's said that Martha Washington named her Tomcat Hamilton because of his wild, amorous ways, and that's fiction. <laughs> but And I realize that's an incredibly minor thing, but uh, you know, so right. there are a few of those things. But overall, it was a m- remarkably well-done, high-energy performance, and I would really recommend it to anybody who's interested in certainly American history, but also just looking for a good time. It's, it's very, very well done. And that says something, too, that that's the thing you notice. I know I went into Allegiance and I had sort of the same, my arms crossed and waiting for there to be something wrong with it. And I thought Allegiance was fantastic. As I said, when I interviewed Kermit Roosevelt about his novel, it's also named Allegiance, talk about synergy and projects. But for this, when you go in and you really don't know what to expect, and I'll be honest, my wife was the same way. She says, I don't know what I'm going to expect here. And at first she wanted to take me and then she said, well, you'll just be complaining about things like like Martha Washington's cat. She instinctively knows about me by now. But the fact that it's so exciting for people and they enjoy the music and the words and there's so much. And as I said, I've been hearing the soundtrack a lot just through her. And she talked about the two of them together. When I mentioned Washington and Hamilton, she said, oh, there's a number about, I guess it's Right Hand Man. Yet it's not really a buddy film, your book or the play. I, I think people cling sort of this idea, this idealized feature of the founders, but they did have some fun falling out, and you cover those in Washington and Hamilton. Yeah, no question. Uh, the two men came from extremely different backgrounds. Washington was basically raised in a very comfortable existence um, amongst the Virginia gentry. Hamilton could not have come from a more dysfunctional background, just a really horrible succession of family tragedies, losing his father, to, or his father running off at a young age, losing his mother to a disease when he was 10 years old and then basically being passed around to various relatives to take care of him. So he grew up fast. So you put that in the background, and then when they finally do meet during the Battle of New York, Battle of Long Island, these are two very different people. There's a fairly large age gap between the two of them, about 23 years. Washington is old enough to be Hamilton's father. But the constant rub between the two, at least during the war years, is that Hamilton really yearned to be in combat, and yet he had this extremely important staff position for General Washington. And Washington, understandably, was reluctant to let Hamilton go and to have that combat experience. So that was probably one of the major sources of tension between the two of them. Plus, to be perfectly honest, Washington, for all his admirable qualities, he was a very distant and somewhat aloof person. And I think that sort of graded at times with some of these younger staff officers. Washington had a very explosive temper, which I think they all experienced on various occasions. So, you know, there's a variety of reasons why, under the stress and strain of battle, uh, these two men had occasionally had these falling outs. And I think the things we read about, obviously— that's never just the first thing. It may seem small, but that might just be the thing that got written down or finally Hamilton was so sick of it maybe that he he decides he just can't take it anymore. And that is a very father and son relationship as we have all experienced, I think, in our life. And 
that's also a rumor that you mentioned in the book. And we talked about whether yeah. there's two things you can do, I guess, in history is you mention the rumor and pass it on so you can debunk it or you just ignore it. And so I wanted to, I did, we decided, I think, to come down on the side of debunking it for people yeah. because it's, it's, it's not factual that he was father and son as sexy as that sounds. Right, right. No, those rumors have, as you said, have persisted for a couple of centuries now. Washington did travel to, I believe it was the Bahamas at one point, I may have that wrong, it was either the Bahamas or Bermuda. So he was, he had traveled, there's one trip outside of the continental United States, but he certainly never made it to uh, the Virgin <laughs> the Virgin Islands where Hamilton uh, was born on the island of Nevis. So the rumor has persisted. I wish I knew where it first started. Uh, that would be interesting to see. It may be possible that it started with some of Hamilton's opponents who like to sort of taunt him with the idea that he was kind of uh, Washington's boy. And as the uh, musical makes clear, that was one accusation that was sort of guaranteed to sort of rub Hamilton the wrong way, that he was somehow Washington's boy or for a more uh, negative way of looking at it, Washington's lackey. But there really seems to be nothing to this idea that Washington was Hamilton's father. And as far as the breaks with them, let's start with one of the least serious ones, at least as far as their personal relationship. It's about a serious issue, slavery. But during the war, they disagree on whether or not to arm slaves or freed blacks during the fight. And Hamilton says that this idea, quote, will give them freedom with their muskets, unquote. But Washington opposes it. Talk about the dynamics of that and why they disagree. Sure. Well, of course, Washington was one of the larger slave owners in Virginia, mostly due to marrying uh, Martha Custis, who was the larger of the two in terms of owning slaves. And Washington, when he first takes command of the Continental Army in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the wake of Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, Washington is sort of put off by the presence of a large number of free African-Americans who are fighting for the Continental cause. What you do see, however, is I think an evolution on Washington's part coming to accept the, the idea that these freed African-Americans can assist the Continental cause. You know, look, it's a gradual one, and I'm not trying to portray Washington in any way as an abolitionist, because he was not. But his position does evolve. And certainly by the end of Washington's life, as he's having serious misgivings about the whole peculiar institution and the negative effects it's having on the American experience. Hamilton, on the other hand, being born in the West Indies and seeing the sort of brutality of the slave trade up close and personal during his time in St. Croix, it's pretty clear, again, he's not an abolitionist, but he's somebody who has serious qualms about slavery. When he meets his good friend John Lawrence on Washington staff, Lawrence from South Carolina, oddly enough, is, is probably the closest, we could say, to an abolitionist. And Hamilton seems to have been profoundly influenced by Lawrence's anti-slavery position. And, of course, it's Lawrence that pushes hard for the creation of an all-black regiment that would be composed of slaves who were promised their freedom in return for their service to the Continental cause. So Hamilton helps Lawrence pushing this proposal it really uh, doesn't materialize in that the Continental Congress ultimately says, okay, but it can only be done with the consent of South Carolina, Georgia. And of course, those state legislatures are simply not willing to do that. So the plan pretty much falls apart at that point. 
Now, having said that, I should also note that, and Ron Chernow points this out in his biography of Hamilton, the American army under George Washington was the most integrated army in American history up until the Vietnam War. So it's an interesting situation. It's complex. I reject the sort of simplistic view that some folks take that Washington was a slave owner. All these guys were slave owners. They're not worthy of our study. They really did wrestle with this question, and they understood that the principles of the Declaration of Independence were certainly at odds with the whole institution of slavery. And I think that that goes back to what you were saying before, why it rankled Hamilton, because if he was just this lackey of George Washington, he wouldn't be going after him on something that was clearly so important to his livelihood and something that he knew would rankle things. It was just him trying to get what he wanted. And I think anybody who's been young and worked for somebody or been attached to somebody, even if it is your father or whatever, hey, you want to try to get something that you want sort of out of them. But they didn't have, as I said, no disagreements at all. And that's, I could see that really bugging Hamilton, especially knowing what he knew that I'm sure he wouldn't have been spreading at the time that, gosh, he was driving me nuts a lot of times when I was on his staff. Sure. That's a great point. This notion that Hamilton was somehow a lackey of Washington, this, any lackey, as you say, would not have pushed this issue. And, and Hamilton did push it. Now, Lawrence deserves the bulk of the credit, but Hamilton was in the thick of it. And both of these young officers make a very strong case to George Washington. And I'm sure it's, you know, it was a source of some discomfort for Washington to have these two young men whom he admired. But clearly there was a difference of opinion just as to how quickly to move on this question of slavery and using slaves and promise for their freedom to, to get them to fight for the American cause. A more serious divide between the two of them, or a more dramatic one, I guess you'd say. Personally, we talked about when I interviewed the tavern keeper at the old 76 house that you and I have discussed going there, and you can sit at the bar where Washington sat and where they bring Benedict Arnold's conspirator, Major John Andre, there. Hamilton also opposes Washington on that. He liked Andre. He didn't want to see him executed. But if he had to be executed, he said you should at least shoot him to give him the honor of an execution by firing squad. Washington insists on hanging him, of course. And this is proof of what you said. He's not always this happy aide-de-camp Hamilton under Washington. Another great example. Yes. Uh, and it is, there's a larger difference of opinion here between Washington and Hamilton Um this arises both in the Andre case that you just mentioned, and in some other instances as well. Washington had a tendency to be a fairly harsh disciplinarian with his own troops, and certainly uh, you might say harsh in terms of dealing with captured British military members. Washington was a man who, for instance, after Benedict Arnold goes over to the other side, he wanted revenge to the point where he even gives the green light to a kidnapping operation. I'm going to try to kidnap King George III's son and hold him for ransom. And there's some speculation that the ransom would have been, look, you give Arnold back to us and the king can get his prince back. This was a man who held grudges, I think we can safely say, and perhaps at times those got the better of his reason. I hate to be critical of Washington. I might admire him immensely. But that was one of the differences between the two men. Hamilton seemed to have more of a sense of moderation when it came to these tricky sort of disciplinary issue. It's a, a retaliation issue, I guess. Hamilton was much more reserved, much more moderate. And part of it was that I think Hamilton fell for Andre. He was very impressed with this 
British officer who had served as the go-between for Arnold's treason. Uh, this was a very cultivated, very refined man. And Hamilton thought it was both undignified for Andre to be executed by hanging, but also it was undignified for the American cause to sort of retaliate in this fashion. So it's a very, very interesting little example of the differences between Washington and Hamilton. You said about not wanting to be critical of Washington, and I think that's something we all naturally feel about somebody we like in history. But there's always those moments where you say, well, you have to not look away. And the more dramatic break there is over something very personal between Washington and Hamilton is when he berates Hamilton, Washington does, for keeping him waiting. He keeps him 10 minutes and Hamilton had been talking with Lafayette, which seems like it would be a good excuse uh, to, right. to say to somebody, you know, sorry, I had to be talking to uh, our major ally and friend here. But Washington gets really mad at him for keeping him waiting, which I was saying seems like a good way to get broken in half like a breadstick to right. keep General Washington waiting. And Washington explodes at him when he comes up the stairs and, of course, explodes at him in the terms of the day. He doesn't curse him out or anything. And Hamilton just sort of has had it at that point. And even when Washington tries to apologize, which again, shows uh, the more positive side of him, I guess, that we all hope that we can admire. Hamilton tells him no. He says, I'm resigning from the staff and he's leaving. And explain what's behind that, which you did a little bit by saying that Hamilton, of course, wanted a command. He chafed at having to translate French all day, for one thing. Right. That's absolutely right. Well, again, I think this is part of a larger ongoing series of flights. And, and that is Washington did have a serious temper from all accounts. And I do think these young staff officers were frequently the receiving end of that temper. And when, as you mentioned, Hamilton keeps Washington waiting while he's chatting with Lafayette, I just think this is a case where you've got two men who've been side by side from midwinter 1777 up through the early 1780s in tight quarters, under incredible stress and strain, in some cases literally with their lives on the line. And, you know, a series of these kind of small incidents can build up. And I think Hamilton just uh, reached the breaking point. You know, the standard account is it was due to the fact that he wanted a combat command. And I think you know, that's there. But I would actually put more of the emphasis on the simple sort of day-to-day... -day, not Grind. <laughs> grind. Yeah, that's great. The day-to-day -day grind of trying to keep this army intact with a Congress that doesn't seem to care at times, with a series of states that don't seem to care, uh, with an army that's constantly on the edge of falling apart due to desertions and due to inability to pay these guys. It just snapped for Hamilton at this point. Plus, I guess we should also say he's got a love interest at this time with, of course, Elizabeth Schuyler, becomes his beloved wife. And, you know, she's sort of waiting in the background as well, kind of hoping that at some point he'll come home and stay more than a day or two. My guest is Stephen Knott, who you can follow on Twitter at Publius57. Very clever Twitter name, by the way. He's co-author with Tony Williams of Washington and Hamilton, The Alliance That Forged America. Publishers Weekly wrote, quote, William and Knott's thesis that Washington and Hamilton built the institutions that led to the United States emerging as a superpower in the 20th century adds a new angle to the enduring public fascination with the founding fathers. And I wanted to mention that to you, that new angle. That's 
hard to do with these iconic figures. You feel like it's ground that's been walked over so many times. The, of course, origin story as I describe it. You do a new Superman film or Batman film. You can only kill Batman's parents so many times in the alley or have Superman shot off from Krypton while it's falling apart before I think people feel, well, I know this already. Why do I have to spend the first 20 minutes of this movie seeing what happens? Because if you are following them and now those are both so iconic and of course Washington's iconic even more so and he's a real human being, that's hard to do. And so I wanted to ask, how did you and Tony Williams balance that out? Yeah, great question. Well, I wrote a book about 12 years ago called Alexander Hamilton and the Persistence of Myth. And I've always felt that Hamilton has never quite been given his due. Now, that may be less true today, certainly with the musical and with other events that have sort of furnished Hamilton's uh, image. But Madison and Jefferson, that sort of duo, or Jefferson and John Adams, even though those two had a period where they were not speaking to each other that went on for years, they tend to, it seems to me, get most of the attention when it comes to the American founding. And not that they weren't important people, of course they were, but for some odd reason, the fact that this book is the first book that really just flat out says this was the most important relationship of the founding era, and it's written in 2015, is kind of astounding to me. Mm. And I think it reveals a certain bias, to some extent, within the historical profession towards Jefferson, especially, and Madison to a lesser extent, partly because Jefferson and Madison... Their correspondence has a sort of poetic quality to it. It has a philosophical quality to it. Washington and Hamilton's correspondence is much more focused on pragmatic problem solving. It's a little more prosaic instead of poetic. So academics, I think, tend to be drawn towards the philosophical or the poetic. Again, the point being that I just don't think this relationship has been given its due. And part of what Tony and I were attempting to do was to correct that historical oversight or historical distortion. Uh, we firmly believe that this was the critical relationship, despite the fact that they had their occasional falling outs. You know, without these two men, I don't see the federal government. I don't see the Constitution. I don't see the American Revolution succeeding. And yet, again, most of the attention, it seems to me, throughout the course of our history has been focused on Jefferson John Adams or James Madison. And so we're we're attempting to redress this problem. He doesn't have a monument in Washington, D.C., does he, Hamilton? He does not. He has a statue on the grounds of the Treasury Department. It's on the backside of the building, so it's not on Pennsylvania Avenue, so it doesn't get a lot of visibility. He does have a statue in the rotunda of the Capitol. He's uh, next to George Washington, and on the other side of Washington is Jefferson. But he does not have that sort of major monument that we think of when we think of the Jefferson Memorial or the Lincoln or Washington Monuments and Memorial. Of course, part of that, I think, is explainable due to the fact that he was never president. It certainly helped Jefferson's cause that he was a two-term president. Yeah, he does. However, Hamilton have a marker there in Weehawken, but even that's not on the actual ground because next time you're in Manhattan, folks, and you look over there at New Jersey and see the Palisades, of course, that's always being worn down. But he does have at least <laughs> something to remember there. When I go through that little road, I always sort of look at it. Sure. There's a reenactment every year, which I'm sure next time they do it is going to be packed with so many people to <laughs> because of the play, as you mentioned. Right. They have this falling out. As I said, they don't reconcile after Washington berates them there on the stairs. And yet 
again, sort of as a sign of Hamilton, this young man, he's still going and sort of trying to get favors out of Washington as far as battle goes when he's fighting. At Yorktown, Hamilton's the one that ends up leading the charge. How does he get that honor? Yeah, that's correct. Well, part of it, I think, was due to the intervention of Lafayette. Lafayette is sort of the overall commander of this assault on these redoubts that Hamilton was selected by Lafayette to do this. And Washington, this is an example, I think, of Washington's magnanimity, he agrees to allow it, to allow Hamilton sort of lead one of these critical charges. So I think we owe both Lafayette and and ultimately we owe George Washington the fact that he was willing to set aside the bad feelings from the falling out. And, And to be perfectly honest, our book, I think, puts most of the blame or onus on Hamilton for sort of aggravating the situation. I mean, Washington did reach out, did try to patch things up. And Hamilton, being a much younger man and I think a little more headstrong, was unwilling to take the sort of mature step and accept this essential, what amounted to an apology from Washington. It just takes a while for this young firebrand, Hamilton, to sort of come around and say, okay, maybe it's time to put this in in the rearview mirror. But we owe it to Washington, and I think we owe it to Lafayette, that Hamilton finally gets this combat command that he's been yearning for. And only at the major battle of the war, Yorktown. Yes, and yes. I thought of another thing as you were speaking that I didn't think of while reading Washington and Hamilton, and that was that because Washington's the father figure, I, I'm sure Hamilton had a lot of resentment for his father disappears on him. He's raised only by his mother. So it really is a complex relationship. And they're at so many places here, not only in the revolution, but next I was going to mention the Constitutional Convention. Chapter six of your book is Different Roads to Philadelphia, which they certainly were, sort of bringing them back together here. Not only do they play a huge role there in Washington, an incredible role in pushing for the ratification of the Constitution, but in the middle here, you talk about the Newburgh conspiracy and how it really contrasts Hamilton's impatience, I guess you'd say. Again, this youthful vigor. He thinks he can rile up these army officers that aren't being paid and have them do his will, I guess you'd say, rather than go and actually mutiny. You contrast that with Washington's wisdom at the time. It's an amazing story, and I didn't realize how deeply Hamilton was involved with it. So explain briefly for people what the Newburgh conspiracy was all about. Sure. Yes, you had a period when uh, this is an awkward stage of the war that the victory at Yorktown had already occurred, uh, but yet the war was not over. There's not a peace treaty between the United States and Britain until 1783, and Yorktown is in the fall of... 1781. So you've got this awkward sort of uh, pseudo war with the British are still holding on to New York City. They still have large placements of troops up and down the Atlantic seaboard. And the American army is still in the field up in and around New York and New Jersey area. To make matters worse, you have the Continental Congress up to its usual inefficient manner of, you know, they're not, they're not funding the army. Uh, They're not paying the soldiers, they're not providing the supplies, and the soldiers in the officer corps are getting restless because they're serving this cause and they don't feel that their service is being properly rewarded. So you do get a group of officers who begin to talk about the possibility of marching on Congress, uh, literally at the bayonet point, and demanding what they believe is their due. This is a controversial aspect of Hamilton's career. There are some historians who argue that Hamilton was not part of this. Newburgh was the camp where the American army was based at this time. 
this Newberg conspiracy, whether Hamilton was part of this or you know was in the thick of it or was not in the thick of it, there's still a lot of confusion, I think, over the extent to which Hamilton was involved. We kind of come down on the side of he certainly was aware of it and he thought perhaps that something good might come of it to the extent that it would get Congress off its dead behind and make amends to this army that had been in the field now for years. Washington would have nothing to do with this. He put this revolt, this conspiracy down as hard as one can possibly do so, and, uh, but does so in an interesting way, which is kind of pulling on the emotional, you know, basically telling his officers corps, look, you know, I've grown old and gray in the surface of my country. I can barely read. He had to put his glasses on at one point, make a little statement to the officers. He pulls on their emotional attachment to him and quells this, puts this thing down. And thank God for doing that, because, of course, he sets a very important precedent when it comes to civil-military relations. That look, as inefficient and as ineffective as this Continental Congress happens to be, they are still our superiors, and we owe them our deference. And that principle, of course, has prevailed to this day. You remove Washington from the picture, and again, you have a case where things could have been very, very different. He really was the indispensable man. So this is one of the high points of Washington's career. I would say for Hamilton, it's not necessarily a low point, but it's not a shining moment because I think there was a part of him that thought, well, maybe something good could come out of this. And Washington thought nothing good will come out of this. You mentioned that moment where Washington puts on his glasses famously before his generals and says, you have to forgive me because I've gone almost blind in the service of my country. And they all start weeping and it smashes this conspiracy. It also occurred to me reading Washington and Hamilton in a way it hadn't before that glasses were not, it wasn't just something you did putting on your glasses back then. It was still, and even through Theodore Roosevelt's days, a lot of people picked on him when he first went out to the Badlands of Dakota to be a rancher because they felt that it was a sign of sort of a moral deficiency that you that your eyes went bad, as strange as that might sound. So Interesting. I didn't realize that. Huh. Yeah, it just occurred to me, and it hadn't before, but it occurred to me reading your book, which is what a good book does, right? It makes yeah. you think. Right. So, well, thank you. Well, once the Constitution is written, of course, at that Constitutional Convention where many of these letters, as you said, are written back and forth, there's the question of ratifying it. And in Washington and Hamilton, you mentioned that nobody knew that Washington was indispensable more than Alexander Hamilton in getting that going. And it's hard to believe now, of course, victory having so many fathers, there were states that resisted it. Washington is so angry with Rhode Island because they won't just ratify the thing already. So how do the two of them work together here and sort of patch up their relationship enough that they can work for this greater cause of ratification? Sure. Well, you do have a fairly prolonged period during the 1780s after the Peace Treaty of 1783 there's not a lot of contact between Hamilton and Washington. Hamilton is up in New York practicing law. He's trying to make some, some money for his family. He's got a number of kids on the way. Uh, Washington is back at Mount Vernon where he wants to be, living in a fairly comfortable retirement. There are some letters back and forth, but they are of a very formal nature. And increasingly throughout the 1780s, there's this perception, particularly among the veterans of the Continental Army, that everything they fought for is now threatened. In other words, this young American experiment could dissolve. There are economic conflicts between the states. In some cases, that even bleeds over into sort of violent you know, shooting at the borders between these states over tariffs and just the usual sort of friction. 
that arises when you don't have a set system of economic exchange, you have different currencies in each of the states. So by the time you get to 1786 or so, Washington, Madison, Hamilton, Gouverneur Moore, some of the other sort of key figures of the revolutionary era are beginning to say, look, you know, the Articles of the Confederation are not working. Uh, we need something better. And I think Hamilton quickly comes to see that Washington is the only national figure. He is the one person, the hero of the Revolutionary War, who might be able to somehow lend legitimacy, lend credence to a, a new effort, a new political order uh, that will try to eliminate some of these frictions between the states. So, well, I guess I will say it. Part of it is calculation on Hamilton's part. He's already been thinking since at least 1780 that we need a stronger central government. And he comes to realize that this is only going to happen if he can list the aid of the one national figure that's known from Georgia to New Hampshire, and that's George Washington. So he begins to sort of work on Washington to enlist the great man to lend his name to these efforts to increase the powers of a central of a new central government. And Washington is already there philosophically. So it really wasn't didn't require a tremendous effort on Hamilton's part to recruit Washington for this effort. Eventually, when Washington does accept the job of the first president, which, of course, also Hamilton encourages him to do, tells him he has to do it, basically, Yes. he becomes his treasury secretary. And I did not know until I read Washington and Hamilton that Hamilton was not Washington's first choice because, incredibly, he didn't know that Hamilton had such a mind for finance until somebody comes and tells him and says, well, hey, why don't you pick why don't you pick right. Hamilton? I think maybe it's his first choice, right? It was. He says, yeah. what? He, he knows numbers? I Because he had so many talents. He's just an amazing figure. And, of course, eventually part of the central government that you're talking about, one of the forms it takes is Hamilton pushing the National Bank and he gets Washington over to his side, which, of course, earns the anger forever of the Jeffersonians. And Thomas Jefferson has all of his press ripping him, which is many of the things historians have always read, as you alluded to before. But how does Hamilton get Washington over to his side there to support that National Bank? Well, I would say it really did not require a tremendous effort. Basically, again, what I'm saying is that Washington is already there. His writings, his thinking about what needs to be done perhaps aren't at the level of Hamilton's, but he's there in terms of thinking we're going to lose all of the gains we just won through that hard-fought, bloody, costly American Revolution. He's already there. And I think one of the myths that's out there, and it was sort of propagated by first Jefferson and then a lot of sort of Jeffersonian-inclined journalists and historians, is that somehow Hamilton bamboozles Washington into supporting things like the National Bank. Washington's already there. He's already thinking, again, maybe not as elaborately and as deep as Hamilton, but he's already thinking that these are the kinds of things we need to do. He's seen up close and personal during the Revolutionary War the effects of not having a stronger central government when it comes to matters of war and peace. I mean, nobody knows better than he does the difficulties of fighting a war, you know, having to have all of the states line up and agree to do things and not having a sort of a national bank that can provide the financial wherewithal to train and equip an army. He knows this as well as anyone. So he's already there. I don't think it's much of a sell for Hamilton to convince Washington to back the bank, to back the assumption of the state debts, and to back some of the other initiatives that were designed to strengthen the powers of the central government. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't willing to listen to 
Jefferson and Madison and some of the others who had constitutional qualms about some of these proposals. But once he was convinced that the Constitution does give the federal government the power to do things like create a national bank, on the policy question, he's already there. You talk about a lot of other great moments, of course, in Washington and Hamilton. One of them is the Whiskey Rebellion. And you talk about kind of debunking this notion that Hamilton ends up being the heavy in all of the writing. So I think people will really get something out of this, even if, like myself, they've read many books about Washington. And there are, of course, many out there. This is great to see him through a relationship with somebody who's as close as you can get to a son, I guess, in, in Washington's life. Of course, he has the some adopted uh, children, you know, in this family as he actually calls them there during the revolution. You've given me generously of your time and to the listeners, and I want to keep you for just one more question. And it's the sort of forward-looking question that I find myself asking when I read books about the founders like Washington and Hamilton. As we look at the future of our republic, of course, in 2016, we're going to fill Washington's office. They worked really hard and they suffered a lot to give us this republic. So what do you think young people can learn from sort of looking at Hamilton? If you're a young person in your early 20s right now, what can you learn from Hamilton? And maybe what can somebody that's a little older like you and I learn from Washington as we try to serve the nation in our own way? Yeah, I would say one of the more important things you could learn from both of these men is to beware of sort of simplistic, it's very easy in a republic like ours to rally the people around a cause that is supposedly going to make their lives easier. But there's a, not a cynicism, there's, there's a healthy skepticism, I think, on the part of both Washington and Hamilton towards any sort of utopian schemes, any sort of political figure who sort of plays on the people's fears, who plays on the people's desires, perhaps to make their lives easier. Not that that's a bad thing, but part of the reason both Washington and Hamilton are so skeptical about the French Revolution, when in fact Jefferson thought at first anyways that it was terrific, uh, was that it had a kind of utopian philosophy underlying it, that you know, governments here on Earth could sort of create a kind of heaven on Earth almost. And for Hamilton and Washington, that kind of utopian abstract thinking was very dangerous. And you had to be always vigilant for political figures who sort of promised this kind of utopianism. You know, there's a healthy skepticism. I don't want to use the term conservatism because that might turn off some folks. I'll just say a healthy skepticism towards the ability of man and men to sort of achieve perfection. You've got to accept men and women as they are. They're flawed human beings, and therefore you act accordingly. In a way, these two guys were the, the ultimate realists. They were the first realists. I hope that the American people and the folks who read this book come away with a with an understanding that there's there's something I think positive about that kind of skepticism towards political figures. You might even use the term demagogues who promise them that if only they are elected, their lives will change overnight. Their lives will be made much easier. You need to be very skeptical of that kind of a pitch. Stephen Knott, great words to end on. Thank you so much for sharing Washington and Hamilton, not only that, but really introducing them to us in a way we haven't seen before. Next time, I hope Tony Williams, yourself and I can all meet up in person, maybe at Old 76 House and talk more about Washington and Hamilton. Oh, that'd be great, Dean. I would love it. <laughs> 
book is Washington and Hamilton, The Alliance That Forged America. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at our website, historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. We get an IOU from the Continental Congress every time you do. Not sure we'll ever be able to cash that one in. Again, my thanks to Stephen F. Knott for joining us and for shedding new light on the faces of our $1 and $10 bills. Remember, you can follow him at Publius57 on Twitter and find his co-author Tony Williams there too at T. Williams Author. We hope you'll let us know what you think of the book by shooting us a tweet at History Dean or at Facebook.com slash History Author. And by the way, despite their age difference, Hamilton only survived Washington by five years. He died in the infamous duel with Vice President Aaron Burr. Well, that's it for this week's installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever it is you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to give us a rating, only a click of your little finger there, and you'll be doing much, much, much better service than Aaron Burr did with his little finger. So until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening, and happy reading. Happy reading.